Hi, and welcome back to Activists of Tech, the Responsible Tech Podcast. You've definitely heard of privacy and cybersecurity. These are hot topics because they impact everyone using tech, and tech is everywhere. Now you may think, but Melissa, now we have all these AI policies around the world, we have these privacy bills, so it's passed. We're all good. Except it's not, and we're not good. There still are use cases that are left unnamed, unregulated, and unaddressed. And why do we care? Because as always, the demographic that is the most impacted, you guessed it, is already marginalized. These breaches always impact marginalized communities. It keeps happening under capitalism, just living on planet Earth, and there is no surprise left. Like, we know who is going to be impacted the worst. I'm talking about minorities, children, people with disabilities, elderly people, people with no internet at home, and activists, for example, as well as people from developing countries who may also fall under all the categories that I just stated. Or basically anyone who is not a white man from the Silicon Valley. And up until this day, we can still see a product being developed and deployed as a tech quote-unquote solution without having data privacy or cybersecurity as a core component of its design. Thankfully, there are leaders, educators, and practitioners that are stepping up to bridge this gap between tech and justice. And today, one of them is joining us. It's Samira Dalla. They are an expert in privacy and security with over a decade of experience in the field. They focus on security and privacy with an equity and human rights lens that we desperately need. On top of being an advocate and educator, Amira was previously the director of impact partnerships at Consumer Reports, where they worked with organizations on projects to improve the safety, security, and privacy of consumer products and tools. They also denounced issues that included discriminatory technologies, deceptive design, digital access, and inclusion. Before joining Consumer Reports, Amira worked at Mozilla Foundation, where they developed digital education programs in more than 100 countries, ran privacy and security advocacy-focused campaigns, and collaborated with global institutions on programs to increase digital rights and privacy programs worldwide. Amira's purpose across organizations has been to make emerging technologies more inclusive, open, and safe. And of course, they also hold a Master of Public Administration from Columbia University, where they focused on technology and human rights. Amira is a powerhouse of a person, and I hope this episode empowers you as much as it empowered me to make change happen. Amira, hi, welcome to the show. Hi, Melissa. So nice to be in space with you. I'm so happy to have you here. You've been many things in tech, right? You've worked for startups, uh, huge companies. You did community organizing, advocacy. How did you get where you are today? What's your story? My story? Well, um, that's a hard one to answer because I feel like I could be many stories. I know. Uh, and I, I can share so many of them. Yeah, it's a, it's a big meta question to start off at. But um, at the core, I think like so many of my stories are interlinked with my story for liberation uh, and how things that I focus on, such as emerging technology, can enable and harm the future of liberation. So our evolutions, often particularly our digital ones, have been so enthralled to be a part of and watch them grow and evolve. But when you look closely and talk to people, you will hear how so many of these systems have enabled cycles of harm, violence, and discrimination for so many people. Um, so at my core, I feel like my story is centered around community and liberation, because I've always believed in the power of community and I feel my story is so intertwined with helping build communities and raise their voices so that they can be heard. 
You said that liberation and tech are intertwined. Is that what led you to focus on privacy and security? Yeah, and the liberation and tech part being intertwined was totally something that I grew into. It wasn't like I knew right away that something was wrong in tech and I had to be there and uh, in this weird, non-heroic way, try and save it. But uh, it's something I kind of actually stumbled into when I first started working. And I actually started in brand working. So I worked at huge global brands like Disney, P&G, Unilever, and so many others under this perception when I was younger that the bigger the brand that people knew, the more success that it would evolve and have, and I would essentially have as well. Um, but it was specifically at the time in the last brand organization I worked at where I was working on Dove Body Wash, a very common name that many people know, um, where the internet was really, really taking off. Uh, and I remember going into my boss at the time and I said, we need to invest more in how we show up online. Um, and it was at that time when uh, she pretty much did this laugh me out of the room energy and said, that was too risky. We'll never do that. We don't want to be online. We don't want to be there. We don't want to show ourselves there. And this was pre all like ad marketing business entirely. Uh, and I was like, okay, I see the future and I see technology, how it's in there and what the potential is. And I need to be somewhere where I can actually start to realize that vision. And so I jumped headfirst into technology and I started at a startup that streams uh, videos to mobile devices. And at that time, that technology was revolutionary. It had yet to be done. I remember the moment we first did that, uh, sitting in a big room in North America, and we're able to stream a video to all of North America on mobile cell phones. And at that time, you didn't have just two operating systems. You had many operating systems. So the whole technology was much more difficult than it was now. And it's always interesting for me to not only think about that, but share that story, because it wasn't that long ago, like 15 to 20 years ago, when that first happened. Um, and then from there, I was so invested in technology and the possibility of what it could be that I wanted to follow that thread and really jump into more of a technical role and career. And that's what led me to Mozilla Foundation. Uh, and it was there that I really got to learn about technology from hundreds of communities around the world who I am so indebted to sharing their experiences um, and their uh, their work and advocacy on the web and in their communities and countries. And at that time, I really only focused on digital rights and literacy. So I was looking at how do we make the internet accessible? How do we make it fair for people? How do we make sure people have the skills and education that they need to engage online? And I spent years doing that uh, with global communities. And throughout that time, I, something started to tick for me. Um, and it really was a pivotal moment where I realized that the communities that looked and sounded and acted like me um, actually cared less about digital literacy and they cared more about privacy and safety. And I remember this one moment that someone told me, they're like, okay, great. I'm really happy you can help, help me get online to do this thing, but actually I'm more worried about what happens when I get on there because of the stories that I've heard of people losing money, being attacked, um, being harassed in other ways, and all these other things that actually prevented a large group of people from accessing the internet. And what happened is in that time you had only certain people were accessing the internet and, and revolutionizing it and being part of this revolution, which put them well ahead of the curve and accessing more resources um, and support in ways that could help their businesses, their lives. Uh, but at that same time, um, you had so many other people 
who were not because they were scared. And I felt so deeply connected to those people and and so much of what they were going through uh, that I actually started to really pivot my career and my energy towards privacy and safety in order to help those communities do more. And since I've been in privacy security now for about a decade or more, um, it's really, uh, I always say this, it's really been one of those spaces that I'm fortunate to have gone into and unfortunate how much it has grown in the last decade because I did not go in expecting it to be such a pivotal part of technology conversations and the space we're in now. Um, and I'm really happy that I can contribute to that. But at the same time, I think we are more at risk in terms of our private security than we ever have been. And we're, we're looking for more answers and more solutions. And that leaves a lot of room for conversations, but it is also a large fear in me of, of the spaces we're creating and what that impact has. What kind of risk would you say the lack of privacy and cybersecurity mostly causes around the world? The privacy and security risks around the world can greatly differ. So, and it really differs depending on the communities that are most at risk. So, you know, we talk about this largely in an American setting where I'm based, um, the, the potential for misinformation uh, to control uh, economy, elections, uh, so society, culture, um, it can have ripple effects that are astounding to our democracy in essence. Um, and then I, and when I think about um, privacy security in global ways, I think about the ways in which it means internet being shut down and censored or large voices not being online. Um, I think about how money, which holds great importance uh, in many every part of the world, but um, in certain in certain communities and cultures and economics, people have less of it. And when you get and when your money gets taken, it it is definitely more of an impact on your society well being and your personal well being. And so, like all, a lot of these issues exist throughout the world, but I think they impact people in different ways depending on where they're coming from. And I have not personally been in a space where my internet has been shut off, and I have been uh, refrained physically from posting and sharing online, but. I think of that example specifically because in many parts of the world, that is a reality for a lot of people and that cuts out their voices and in essence makes them unsafe from access for information uh, in ways in which they really do need it or the ability to share their voice and what's happening to them. So you gave quite a few examples about privacy. So we know that privacy and cybersecurity encompass a, a wide range of applications. What has been your focus over the past few years, uh, decade, and how does that relate to social justice? Yeah, I could probably sum this up as in my focus has been on a few core areas. Um, the first one really focuses on research and resources, specifically in cybersecurity. So I have created reports every year to understand how do we change behavior of people to get them to be able to adopt a more cyber hygiene life. So in essence, how do we get people to use VPNs when they need to understand what they do, um, understand how to check for malware, stop sharing their location, some basic things, some more intensive things. Um, I really have been studying and looking at how do we get to move those people along? Uh, because right now we do live in a world where people are feeling so overwhelmed that things like that feel second, uh, secondhand, second nature, where they don't feel like they need to do it as much. Um, so between creating reports, developing curriculum, working on platforms that share uh, critical resources like securityplanner.org and making sure people have what they need to make safer decisions online um, would be the first bucket. And then the second one has really been focused on improving the privacy and security of platforms and emerging technology. So 
Um, since I started technology, technology has boomed in so many ways and it's not gonna stop at all. And so what we're seeing is emerging technology blow up in a spaces where we're producing so quickly without the necessary guardrails that we need to keep people safe. And what we're getting is a lot of discriminatory technologies. We're getting a lot of implications of deceptive design, of trust and safety on sites. And so I look at the platforms and systems and I work with organizations and people on how we can actually improve them to be more private and secure. And what are the fundamentals that we need that we can standardize across one organization to industry-wide. Um, and then the third one that I really focus on, and this one probably relates the most to social justice, is just the idea of community care. I think community care is, is critical in my life, is critical in the lives of so many others uh, in the social justice movement. And I think of that holistically in a privacy and secure world, whether you are an advocate, an activist, an, an educator, or um, just an average person, we all need to understand privacy and security and how we do that for both ourselves and others. Because uh, truthfully, our own nature of understanding privacy and security and the ways we keep ourselves safe actually are enabling the safety of others. And so I, to me, having control and understanding of privacy and security is not just about you, it's actually a broader movement of the people around you that you might be capturing, that you might be sharing inadvertently, um, and all the sorts of information that you might have relating to other people. And so I think of how we reframe this, and part of that is the movement where I've really been pushing in, uh, and I focus, um, I focus in a lot, is like, how do we enable people to understand that at a wider lens? Tech literacy must fluctuate across communities how we understand privacy varies greatly depending on who we are for instance we now have the option to configure our privacy settings online so when you go on the website you have the option to accept or reject some cookies and ask them not to track you and your personal data sometimes and by that i mean most of the time i find that the design of these pop-up windows is very deceiving actually because when you deselect everything and ask not to track, the highlighted portion at the bottom of that window is accept all. And that actually will push you towards accepting everything instead. So this raises two issues, tech literacy for people to take an extra step and not give away their personal information and privacy design. Have you worked on the relationship between privacy and design and the understanding of communities of tech literacy? And what were the takeaways? Yeah, I will start by saying the cookie pop-up is a scam. It is a full-on scam, um, and I'll break that down a little bit more. Uh, but, you know, we have laws that require companies to share whether they're tracking you or whether they're getting cookies or, or other sorts of data that they capture from you. Um, but it doesn't say necessarily how they have to do that. And so in this sort of a lens, what companies do is they amass a whole bunch of data points and information that they have on however many users that have been on their site. So they companies spend billions of dollars in this industry to understand exactly where your mouse moves, where you're, where you're looking, what you're doing, uh, what are the, the words in which you're clicking on. And what they do is they, they summate all of those together to actually put that towards what we call is deceptive design. Um, but in reality, what it is, is trying to get you to click on what they want you to click on. And so the fact that those buttons exist at the bottom of a page, often blocking a lot of content, so you are, uh, in essence, wanting to remove it as quickly as possible, 
Um, and then it says the only options are accept all or manage your choices. Now, the words we look at as being very crucial are manage your choices. Manage your choices are designed as a, as a sentence to deflect people from wanting to manage their choices because they feel like it might take time. It might take them out of the page. And what if they were only there for like five seconds or 10 seconds, like the average attention span we're talking about of a human person. And so when you look at that, people will automatically lean towards saying accept all. Now, in my studies and in my behavior, and when I talk to people, I actually encourage them to click, uh, choose an alternative or, or confirm your choices, because within one extra second, what you could do is click on that and select necessary cookies only, or necessary tracking only, or necessary advertising data only, uh, which limits all the additional information that this company is getting so that they don't use and harness that data and then sell it potentially or leverage it to actually push you to make a different behavior or decision. And so that in itself is an entirely large example as to why the internet um, can be very flawed in the ways it directs uh, and leverages behavior to encourage what it needs and wants people to do. Uh, so, you know, I encourage people even now to like continue to select on the other option, then accept all and actually understand what that means and start to learn more about that. Um, and, you know, I have worked a lot in privacy and design. I think they're crucial in this element because, you know, the design can force you to select things you wouldn't normally select or select things that are not great for your privacy and security. And we can have an entire podcast just on data flows and understanding how they work and what why they are important. Um, but we live in a world where data is currency. And thanks to intense uh, lobbying by tech companies or you know them hiding this from us, we actually don't view data as currency as much as we should and as much as we hold on to physical money and choose where we spend it wisely. Uh, we instead give out our data in a very blanket way because we don't realize the impact that that has on both us and everyone else. And so I really always want to connect those two. And the way in which I often talk about this is really diving into deceptive design patterns because they exist all over the internet. And the fact that we don't even have um, everyday people understanding what they are or understanding that term, I think is the first issue in how we tackle them. And so when I say they live everywhere online, like you have all witnessed deceptive design. Uh, you just don't understand necessarily the categories of how you've seen it or what it means. And I think that's partially because the design is done so well that it actually is taking private information away from you without realizing, without you realizing that that's what it's doing, which is entirely its purpose. So I'll give a few examples so we can think about this critically. You know, the one mo very common way that people get immediately is uh, deceptive design is when you are checking out of a food delivery service or renting a car and it shows you one price on the page. And then when you go to check out an extra X amount of dollars have been added to your bill. If you have never been told that pricing up front, then that's a deceptive design. They're luring you in with a lower price and then adding a whole bunch of money at the end at a time when you've already gone through all the steps to confirm and do whatever you have done. And then at that point, you're more invested as an individual and you're less likely to exit or disappear. Now, some people will, but they're adding in that extra cost and you're paying it for the most part. Uh, another example is the cookie setting. So it pushes you out 
of opting out. It doesn't want you to take out the, the marketing, the data will collect on you that it'll sell. All of that is monetization for them in the long run, whether they're keeping the data internally and externally. Um, another example I like to talk about often because a lot of people have seen it, uh, LinkedIn is notorious for deceptive designs. Um, and one example that many people have known about if you've ever been on the platform is when you go onto LinkedIn, repeatedly it will ask you to add your friend book or your mailing book or whatever it's called in, your, in the terms online uh, into LinkedIn to connect with more people. And they phrase and position that as if it's a good thing for you to add them in uh, because you want more connections, you wanna look more popular, you wanna follow your contacts. Um, but what you're in essence doing is you know, without consent from anyone in your mailing book, you're putting all of their info into LinkedIn so LinkedIn can capture it, assess if they have an account, or email and target them if they don't. Uh, and what they might do is send someone you might know um, an email and say, this person really wants you to join LinkedIn because they want you to feel connected on LinkedIn. Now, if I got an email from someone like that, I would be like, oh, that makes me feel really good. I want to be connected to them too. So I'm more likely to click it. It is in essence, one of the greatest marketing tactics for LinkedIn. You want your people on there or you want people you know on there so you all can continue to follow each other in real time. And that is actually a great thing. I love that about LinkedIn, but their way of capturing and doing that and using people to get more people onto there to in essence, like boost their business is unconsensual at the very basis and using large deceptive practices like this. Wow, I I had no idea about LinkedIn practices. I'm revolted against it now. <laughs> I mean, LinkedIn's think... great. We love LinkedIn. Uh, I love LinkedIn. than other places. I, I love going. It gives me a boost of adrenaline, to be honest. Every time I'm on there, I get to just see everyone's exciting and great news in life. And I just, Everyone is I like, thrilled. Yeah, I go on and I applause like 15 and I feel good internally. <laughs> um, but, you know, all these systems can make you feel great. Even when you're adding your friends, it makes you feel great about it, yeah. but you don't realize the implications of what that actually means. Oh, definitely. So you said that data is currency nowadays. Do you think there is an underlying issue to that design problem? Do you think surveillance capitalism is one of the reasons why? Oh, I, um, I think capitalism is at the root of a lot of uh, currently big technology, and that's not a new phenomenon. Um, many people have talked about this in the past. Um, but but literally what we're seeing is, is technology companies that are selling products and services are in essence fueled by their bottom line to make more money, to get more consumers. Um, and they want you, their, their goal is to get you to spend more money, time and energy with them. And they spend billions of dollars to understand your behavior to get you to do more of these things. But what I do think is like a crucial issue in this is they spend all this time talking to you to get you to do all these things, but technology companies are not necessarily in the ebbs and flows of how communication and engagement works. They're not necessarily collecting back all the ways that people are telling them we need their platforms to change to be safer and better for us. Um, and so there isn't like sufficient and trusted ways often to do that, that make you feel better. And those, those things that people are highlighting are often non-monetary things that make them feel potentially greater safety, pleasure, engagement, which is a different bottom line. It's a it's a health bottom line. It's a society and culture bottom line. And those things are not often valued as much in our world and specifically in a business. Would you have examples of the impacts uh, those issues have on individual lives? 
Yeah, I mean, I um, I pointed earlier at misinformation. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we, we can talk about how on a technology platform, things will spread if you have catchy lines that bring people in and evoke emotion from them. Uh, and so, you know, there's two points in here is one, what's more likely to spread online, often things that are pushing the truth and boundaries of it. And then the other part is that as people feel more emotion, they're pushing out information that they haven't checked, uh, that they don't, they haven't like built up the skills to realize whether it is real or not. They're pushing it out because of that emotional feel. And so, you know, when I think about how that can be spread online and how capitalists can drive it or just be the bottom line in a business, um, it's good for a business when people are rampantly going there for resources and education and articles and information um, and people are sharing as much as possible. Uh, but what we don't see is the other end of like, what are people sharing and what is the impact that that can have in a larger economy? So it's a little bit of a bigger example of how that can go. But, you know, we've seen this, we're seeing this a lot right now. And we're seeing how news and articles and, and flashy statements and things that provoke are really what have twisted the game of our digital platforms and social media in a way that actually has not been healthy for so many of our emotional states. So how would you say, because we're seeing what's going on in Palestine right now, how is this, is this misinformation going around uh, impacting actual real individual lives? Yeah, and it's a great question. I know many of us are following what's happening in Palestine. And what I always try to do with people is share how, you know, the technology we're building here and the technology we use here can be amplified and used in really harmful ways on a broader scale in something like a wartime. And so when I uh, think about what's happening in Palestine, I think about all the systems that we have produced that enable millions of people to be harmed in some way. Um, and you know, specific examples in this, I think uh, I talked a little bit about misinformation and the ability of information to be shared on platforms. What we've seen right now is a large spread of misinformation um, being directed about what is happening. And so whenever I look at information online, whenever I post, I actually do my own research to first verify and then also share it. And I think that skill is critical in so many ways, but is ever more critical in these types of moments. Um, and then I think also of the platforms and systems and their ability to control news. So what we're seeing and hearing right now, and I've experienced personally, is accounts getting shadow banned. So if you post about something that the, the platform does not want you to post about, so say you post about uh, Palestine and what is happening to children in the hospitals or in the schools, um, what will happen is on the actual platform, your post will get much less views than it normally does when you post anything else. Uh, so what is common right now is that people's posts, when they post uh, opposing views to Israel, is that they're actually being censored on the platform and not being shown to their followers or larger scale communities. Um, and we're also seeing discussions on how, you know, we have governments asking companies like Meta to remove content online to actually um, to actually remove whose voices are being heard and how content is being shared. Um, we are reducing the number of uh, 
journalists in a country. And so we are relying upon news that has happened uh, through people's online accounts. And we are already seeing the suppression of that. We're also seeing a suppression of the amount of info that we're getting that is quickly taken down. Um, and you know, these are these are low scale things, but they highly impact bigger things. Uh, and they highly impact the news and the information and how all these systems are connected. And I'll, I'll raise two big ones is one, what we've been seeing in Palestine um, through Paltech and others uh, reporting is just that we're seeing the internet go out repeatedly. And when the internet goes out, we don't have access to understand what is happening. Now, this is a long time more tactic as to, to take the internet down in times when you do not want others to understand what is happening in a location. We've seen this around the world with many countries and spaces uh, where dictators, presidents, governments take down the internet in a time of in a, in a time of concern when they're like, I don't like what's being placed. I don't want people to get ideas. I don't want people to access information. And I think that's a huge problem because in our sense of like security and privacy and our ability to understand how to protect ourselves or what to do, or even how to share as a digital rights issue in general, like we see that being largely impacted. And the other part that I'll just raise quickly is the use of new emerging technologies such as AI to target individuals. We have a lot of reporting. There's been some great reporting by Amnesty that came out as to how um, IDF soldiers have gamified an AI process to actually take fake facial recognition from as many Palestinians as possible, sometimes even turning that into a game for, for IDF soldiers with rewards if they are able to capture as many faces as possible and have the most amount of faces in a certain month. And what they're doing with all of that data and all of that surveillance is being able to pinpoint exact people's locations, creating a database of everyone's location and identification through facial recognition programs, which is enabling a widespread surveillance of people already in a prison-like space where they are confined and unable to move around without deep surveillance of every step and every move. Now, many people will advocate that this is for safety reasons. Um, this is for the protection of certain communities, uh, but at the core state is the surveillance world that individuals are living in and the lack of privacy and freedom that occurs when you are being surveilled 24 seven for the large proponent of community and citizens in that area. So like this is, there are many examples in there they're all pretty high scale, but they're all in time in this moment in time of the impact technology can have. And those those examples are not so foreign to us here. We're seeing the impact of facial recognition right now. So much of that that has been tested and used in spaces like Palestine. Um, we're, we're seeing how uh, bigger governments are able to leverage and use that to their advantage and then implement it in other spaces and places and inflicts that harm on other people. And so, you know, what we're seeing is what we're also going to be impacted down in the future in ways that we actually don't even realize right now. Yeah. I mean, these are great examples of the abuse of technology. And we obviously need to use tech more wisely and I would say more humanly. You've talked about the power of community earlier. What do you think is the role of community building and organizing when it comes to applying responsible tech, demanding that tech is used more wisely to security and privacy? I think there's a huge role for community organizing and responsible tech. And um, I will say, like, having witnessed and been a part of it, fortunate to be a part of it, 
Um, I, I think a lot of people know that, and it's been growing substantially over the last few years. Uh, the responsible tech movement was small at first, and there were many people working in different pockets, but it's been coming together and getting bigger and bigger. And I think that is people's understanding that community organizing um, is at the core of what we want to see in the future of responsible technology. Um, and sort of the understanding that the culture technology was built in what I often call a toxic way. I think back to the origins of uh, technology and big tech and the ideology that um, so much of it fueled by we need to move fast, we need to break things, we need to just put it out there, we need to get it live, we need to make sure that it's uh, moving and secure and making money. And the organizing element, which is so beautiful, has pushed back on so much of that culture because that culture didn't work for so many of us and it didn't center people and their rights at the core. The reality that it, you are it's hard to move quick when you are trying to encompass so many different people and different perspectives and different views. And you probably are double slowed down if you want to actually listen to those people and bring them in and understand how to build something for them. Uh, and so, you know, we're really pushing back on those ways and we continuously organize to push the system to be better. But fighting a system internally or externally is exhausting. And that comes at a cost for so many people, which is why um, we, why we're seeing so many people burn out quickly in the organizing field of responsible tech, whether they're part of the movement or doing so internally in their organization. Um, and I think so much about my reasoning to do a lot of community organizing in this space, which is so much fueled by the idea that I want to keep people safe. I want to keep people um, safe who look and feel like me, who have often not felt safe on these systems. Uh, and the term that always comes to mind is we keep us safe. When I think of safety, when I think of how to feel safe, I think of how we keep us safe. And what does it mean to keep our community safe? And so you often see a lot of organizing from those that come from communities that have been historically oppressed online and offline. And you get this double-edged sword of people who are wanting to keep each other safe, our community safe, and you're getting this other side of people who are fighting a system and trying to organize it to be better. So now not only do you have people getting burnt out, but you have particularly a large subset of people of those people being from marginalized groups, whether it's gender, sexuality, race, religion, cultures, others, disability, and they're doing the groundwork to keep people safe who are mostly burnt out. And at that intersection, I think about what it means to build sustainability in the future of technology. So I don't have a great answer to how we combat this, but I think about how critical the organizing piece is. And I think about how critical the idea of these people who are organizing continuously needing to replenish themselves to keep going in a field that is already hard, that is already a culture that we are fighting against. And what that means when so many of us are continuously forced or feeling like we have to leave because these space, because we can no longer thrive and expend ourselves in these spaces that were not necessarily built for us. It's definitely not built for us. And it does cost a lot. Like you either get burnt out, as you said, you might even lose your job or compromise your position. People are actually afraid to speak in tech. There is a culture of silence that is going on. What would you like to say to people who are afraid to speak up? There are so many risks to saying the things that people don't want to hear. Uh, and those risks can be worth taking for many, but have serious implications for those that do. Um, I would tell people that nothing 
was worth fighting for that was not risky uh, and didn't have its own risks. And, you know, we've seen a lot of people take those risks publicly and, um, you know, had repercussions as a result, often having to leave an organization or a field or space. Um, and so many of them, I've been so inspired uh, by the work that they've gone on to do in a way that holds accountability or combats the thing that they were standing up for. And so I find a lot of solace and grounding in that. But I actually think the question is kind of, we need to flip the question. Um, we need to flip the question because I don't think people um, are at fault for not taking the risks of being outspoken and saying the things to make change happen. I think the companies are actually at fault for not embracing a culture that allows for hard discussion and topics where people can ask questions and listen to voices who aren't heard and feel like they're building something that is representative of themselves and of a broader community. And so my push wouldn't be on people to speak up more. I would actually push on people to create spaces that allow them internally to have more of that dialogue and then build that community power so that they can speak up together. So Amira, you've been working towards changing, transforming the status quo. This obviously creates tensions, as you've mentioned, with the ruling tech narratives about privacy and everything related. From your experience, what have been the most impactful solutions to tackle issues of privacy? Tensions, indeed. So many tensions, because I think we are in a culture that has been so eager to move on from these narratives and the exclusions of people from our digital spaces and places. Uh, and, you know, sadly, we are just been reproducing cycles of harm to these communities. And we're going to continue if we don't if we don't harness better solutions. Um, I, I'm often uh, critiqued of saying so many harsh, hard things that are in my mind constantly as it relates to big tech. Um, and I really do believe that we have solutions to drive us out. And I really do believe we need to focus more on the solutions uh, because it's easy to live in the gloom and doom. Um, so some of, the, some of the solutions that I've seen people really invest in that I have seen uh, quite beautifully played out in a lot of spaces is um, really focusing on like education. So I think what I'm seeing from data is people wanna take better steps to protect themselves in the privacy and security. Um, and they will do that if they feel it is easy and trustworthy. And so some of the steps of how do we embed uh, things like pass passcodes into uh, our living systems of Gmail or Google or other things that make it easier for people to have long complex passwords that are easier, less, less hard to hack. Um, and so give people greater controls over their privacy. I think of how education can spool into all those things and how we can have a society that prioritizes their data, that understands the actual emphasis of like how good their data is and what it means and how to use it and leverage it and then where to put it and what to use as a result. Um, and then leading into that, I think about the solutions that focus on resources. We have a huge amount of organizations right now that have just been producing mass amounts of resources of hitting people who need it the most and people who never thought they needed privacy and security help. Uh, I think a lot about small businesses. Uh, small businesses are often forced to wear many hats um, who are often like all, all over the different things that they have to do. And now they have to worry about privacy and cybersecurity. And that is a fundamental part of a system that could take down their entire uh, online, offline marketplace because of something like ransomware. 
Um, and so I, I think about all those that are providing resources that are geared towards the communities that are hit the hardest in these areas who need the most support. Um, Global Cyber Alliance, for one, is putting out a bunch of resources that are geared towards small businesses, that are geared towards other communities. Um, and then I think about what are some of the solutions that have been centered around uplifting things like human rights center design and making sure that that design knowledge is focused on so many of the things that we are guiding within our communities and our organizing and the technology future. Um, and part to play with that is the solutions I I love to teach. Uh, it's one of the things that uh, I find really fulfilling being around uh, students and understanding how they see these systems and being able to uh, talk to them about what these is what they want from these systems and how to impact that change. Um, and right now, what we're seeing is a is a movement towards a lot of uh, engineering development or design programs at schools making topics mandatory like ethics and human rights, things that would involve people to think more critically about what they're building and how that might impact people. Um, there is so often the a mass amount of people that are fearful of the thing that they have created online, the endless sc scroll. Right now we're seeing articles about ChatGPT, people being fearful about what they created there and others. Um, so we need to make sure people have the critical thinking skills that they can bring that into the development of what they're doing. Uh, and then I think about a lot of solutions that are focused on tools and apps that are filling the gaps in the marketplace where we don't have policy and legislation, something that I really wish we had more of, but because technology has been growing so quickly, it's been hard um, for a non-technical field of our legislative to like actually catch up. But, you know, there's a lot of tools um, that I use and I've used regularly. I think about Access Now uh, digital helpline that's available for people in critical privacy or, or security issues. I think about Consumer Reports, uh, Permission Slip app that allows you to take your data off online. Um, there's so many different programs that are filling the gaps right now that are providing intangible solutions that help keep us safe. And it takes a village. Like, as you said, there are so many spaces involved to make change happen. And your work has been part of a collective responsible tech movement. What has been your experience collaborating with other organizations and people? And where do you see the collective future of responsible tech? Yeah, I, w I mean, the, the collective movement has been so great to be a part of. I think there are people who have been coming out who want to be a part of it, who want to engage, who want to see how their their work applies. And we're seeing that from across the industry. We're seeing that from inside big tech. We're seeing that from nonprofits, from governments, from education places. Um, we're seeing a whole bunch of people come together and say, like, this is what I want to build. This is what I want to see. This is what I want to be a part of. And I think that can be so valuable uh, in this space to have that collective movement of people of different backgrounds and experiences coming together. And so you know, I have good experiences with that. I think if we move in a way that centers rights, that centers consent, that centers safety, we can do that even more. And I see the future of the responsible tech movement really driving um, people as power. And this is actually my personal ideology, and I'm not trying to inflict it on the responsible tech movement, but I think so many people feel this at their core is that we as people hold so much power. And we can leverage and use that power. And I don't, I don't think we're at a space where people realize how much power they have, but I think we're at a space where we can actually tell people and share with them and help them understand how to harness that power and do good with it. 
And so I feel like the responsible future of responsible tech um, really is us understanding how to leverage that power, power and have accountability for individuals, uh, organizations, for governments, amongst others. We do have power. Thank you so much for saying that. And so what's next for you? I've heard you were taking a break. Um, well, as the cycles have shown and I've talked about people getting burnt out and being in this a long mm, time, I, swear to God, um, yeah. I, I decided to take some space because as someone who's been advocating uh, for the past 10 years, specifically about privacy and security, um, I realized that I was saying the same things for the last 10 years. And what I wanted to do on a personal level was to take a step back to understand what are the levers of change? How do we enable that more? How do I personally dive deeper into the areas of support to help lift those areas up, um, both in my personal and professional life, and do more research so we can actually uh, get deeper into the core of these issues and help solve them in ways that feel meaningful and tangible? And there's so many people already doing this and have done this so beautifully and gracefully um, that I knew that that was a moment for me to take some time off. So there's a lot of You'll see on the next parts of my career and where I'm headed, um, but there is a lot of very thoughtfulness uh, that's going into understanding how we can leverage that power as people and how we can have a greater voice in the future of responsible technology. I cannot wait to see it because we desperately need it. Oh, thank you, Melissa. Well, you're going to be a part of it, so that's the good news. Oh, thank <laughs> you so much, Amira. Thank you.